We've spoken a lot on our, our program about this this problem of low interest rates, of, of lack of demand, and, uh, and and inequalities. And we've also spoken about you know government spending as being one of the key ways that we can actually see that inflation might actually uh, rear its head and 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 might actually make a difference. So uh, you know, knowing more about MMT and and really getting a feel for for the, for what's happening, uh, Stephen's just come back from a, a tour with um, Stephanie Kelton, Dr. Stephanie Kelton, uh, who's an advisor to to Bernie Sanders, and so uh, you know, we really wanted we thought it'd be great great opportunity to get him um, and and his his thoughts and, and, and reflections upon where it sits, both from a, a theory perspective and also which parts of the theory are most likely to be taken up by, by politicians and, and, and when. Absolutely. And just a reminder, we are actually shooting live today with Stephen, so feel free to drop in any questions uh, in the Nucleus Wealth live webinar chat box along the way, and we'll get to those in due course. So um, I'll, uh, offer, I'll now offer a, a special welcome to our, our guest for the week, Dr. Stephen Hale. Welcome to Nucleus Investment Insights. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Wonderful. So look, um, just uh, by way of introduction, I guess, and for those who aren't fully up to speed on uh, on MMT, would you mind providing a quick background uh, for anyone who hasn't heard of it and also what attracts you to that theory, please, Stephen? Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, modern monetary theory is a brand name um, which has come to be applied to a, a particular way of looking at the economy, a particular descriptive lens um, for, to help us uh, understand how modern economies actually function, and particularly how monetary systems function. So to address a common question that we nearly always get, actually, modern monetary theory is not something which anybody can ever introduce. It's not a set of policies. It's a way of understanding how our monetary system works and how monetary systems similar to Australia's work, which is based on 25 years of research by a group of academics and bankers as well into the nitty gritty details of how monetary operations actually function. Some people don't like the use of the word theory in MMT. I don't want to get into a discussion now of the precise meaning of that word, but some people prefer to talk about um, modern monetary reality or uh, modern monetary operations or something like that. It's it's a description of the monetary system which, as far as it's possible to do, avoids making abstract uh, assumptions and tries to stick to institutional realities. Um, that's what it is. Uh, you can apply modern monetary theory. You can use this lens in any um, monetary system. But uh, one of the things which MMT uh, emphasises is the importance of the design of the monetary system for determining the degree of policy space available to fiscal authorities like the Australian Commonwealth Government. To have the maximum policy space, you need to have a floating exchange rate like the Australian dollar, basically a fiat currency, which is not fixed to any foreign currency and not on a, not on a gold standard. Um, and you need the government to have no significant foreign currency denominated debt. Now that's the case, again, for the Australian Commonwealth government. It's the, the case for the US. It's the case for the UK. It's the case for Japan. It's the case for New Zealand. It's the case for a number of other countries. 
those countries with the maximum policy space we call monetary sovereigns. And if you're a monetary sovereign, then the following things are true, whether people like the fact that they're true or not. The fiscal authority has no purely financial constraints. However, and it's a very big however, in such economies as in all economies, there are real constraints. We have limited supplies of uh, uh, labor and skills and capital equipment and technology and uh, infrastructure and natural resources. And of course, we have ecological constraints too, which limit the productive capacity of the economy and mean that if there's too much spending in the economy over time, not just government spending, but private spending as well, you come up against an inflation barrier. And it's that inflation barrier, which is the constraint which applies to governments like Australia's government, uh, a lack of funds or concerns about the fiscal balance or the government's debt, which are not themselves directly related to current or expected future inflation, um, are irrelevant. So, so if I can just sort of, if I can just summarise, Stephen. So, basically, what what we're saying is, um, economies have a a, a natural. Um, I guess a uh, natural amount of production that can be produced about it. What we're trying to do is we're really just trying to better, we're just trying to incentivize everyone to actually take part in the economy and, and how we're going to divide the spoils, I suppose. And, and one way of, and, and we use money to do that. And, and what we're, and, and what we've sort of set up this monetary system at the moment where um, we're trying to cap the amount of money out there and, and put these central banks in, in, in charge of that to make sure that we're not producing too much money because we don't want to have inflation and the sort of these fears that happen from, from the 1970s, now we're into this problem where um, we we can't get inflation. We know exactly how we how to do that is we, we need to generate more money, and and modern monetary theory is basically saying um, the government can can create money um, whenever it wants, uh, with the, with the only constraint being that if it creates too much money, then we end up with with an inflation problem. Is that is that? A, a it's not summary? money that's the issue. It's the spending. Of the money that's the that's the issue there are uh, there's a number of things in, in what you've said which we we might want to uh come back to and unpack including the causes of the uh the surge of inflation in the in the 1970s which was not a, a global surge in total spending it was something uh on the supply side or the cost side uh of the economy but if i could just i think it might be good for a minute to take a step backwards and to say that for most people, and this includes some economists and it includes most politicians, the most important thing about a monetary system like ours, which um, they perhaps don't understand properly, is the distinction between currency issuers and currency users. Um, you and I, and the business you work for, the university I work for, corporations, not-for-profits, local councils and state governments are all currency users. If you're a currency user, then if you're going to go and spend, you've got to find the dollars before you spend them. And that means you've got to earn them or you can run down your past savings or you can borrow in order to spend today. And of course, if you borrow today, then that affects your balance sheet in the future. It means you build up debts and there's a risk you won't be able to service those debts and you could become insolvent. 
at some point in the future. That applies to the state government of South Australia. It also applies because of the monetary system they've locked themselves into to every single member of the Eurozone. But it doesn't apply to governments like the Australian Commonwealth government because the Australian Commonwealth government is a currency issuer, not a currency user. If you're a currency issuer, you still need to raise taxes, but the story is the other way around. You spend new dollars into circulation. This happens in Australia every day. Every dollar the Australian Commonwealth government ever spends is a new dollar. So it's almost meaningless when people talk about, um, we never use the term printing money anyway because of the associations it has, but if people say, uh, you, are you saying the government should create money in order to spend it? Actually, that happens every day already. Hmm. That's how the Australian Commonwealth government spends. The accounting record of the notional balance that the government has at the RBA is not included in any measure of the money supply. Every time the Australian Commonwealth government spends into the private sector, let's say, um, that involves the Reserve Bank of Australia effectively typing dollars into private bank accounts. Every dollar the government ever spends is a new dollar. Now, the government then taxes some of those dollars back again. Why does the government tax those dollars back again? It's not because they need your tax dollars before they can spend. They issue the dollars. They can't run out of dollars. Um, the reason why they need to raise taxes, of course, is to reduce your and my ability to spend dollars in order to create room within the productive capacity of the economy for the government to engage in all the spending that it has to undertake on public goods and services and other things without pushing total spending beyond the productive capacity of the economy. So taxes play a vital role, uh, a vital macroeconomic role in our system. But uh, if somebody was to ask me, as they sometimes do, do taxes at the federal level pay for government spending in a literal sense? No, they don't. And this has been widely understood for a long time. In 1946, somebody called Beardsley Rummel, who was the president of the New York Federal Reserve, wrote an essay which said uh, uh, taxes for revenue are obsolete. Hmm. And, and a, a, a good example of that. A good example, I think, might have been one of Stephanie's, or at least somebody certainly in the MMT space, was sort of spoke about that, where you're saying, you know, the, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, um, and the next day the uh, the the US government goes out and and mobilizes all its forces and and hires, you know, gets gets industries starting building planes and tanks and all these other things like that. They didn't actually have to go out and, and issue debt. They didn't have to go to the market and say, hey, guys, we'd actually like to have a war. Um, can you please give us some money so we can fund it? And, and can you pay us some extra tax money so we can do it? They can just sort of go out the next day and, and start spending that money regardless of the um, – that what they did want to do then is, is raise taxes so that um, people aren't out there buying new cars while uh, and, and, forcing, and getting the car manufacturers to make a new car when they actually wanted the car manufacturer out making a tank so they could, mm. um, they could go and fight the war. It didn't just raise taxes, though. The, uh, mm. the US, I don't like to get too far into these war analogies because, yep. of course, uh, people, people imagine you're just talking about some, something which is relevant during wartime. But mm. in the case of Britain, which had just been through the Great Depression and which you would imagine was a bankrupted society, when the Second World War came around, uh, of course, they didn't say we can't afford to transform our economy to put it on a war footing. And neither did uh, they say we need to raise taxes before we can go and spend. There is a very interesting little pamphlet, which is which people can find online if they want, um, 
called, called How to Pay for the War, which was written by John Maynard Keynes. Uh, and, uh, um, of course, there was a huge increase in public spending during the war. And, of course, in order to um, offset some of what would otherwise have been the inflationary consequences of that spending, of course, there were higher taxes, but there were other vehicles which perhaps, uh, uh, including uh, something which would have a modern equivalent in Australia, would, I suppose, involve a temporary increase in uh, in compulsory superannuation savings. There were other ways which were also used to keep inflation under control. And actually, during the Second World War in Britain, there was no inflationary problem. Mm. Inflation was kept under control. And by the end of the Second World War, the inflation rate was something like 2% mm. in, in the uh, UK. Okay, so but, uh, we, can, we can get diverted a bit if we start talking yeah, too much absolutely. About, about the Second World War. Yeah, that's right. So I think we're probably, uh, we've probably got a, a rough idea now, hopefully, and, and readers who, who, or listeners who hadn't, uh, who hadn't sort of heard of MMT or, or been into the depths hopefully have a, a better idea. Um, one of the key uh, questions people get after, after hearing about it is, is just explaining the difference between, um, I guess, old-fashioned Keynesian stimulus that you that I guess a lot of people who, who went to university in the 70s and 80s and 90s would have learnt about and, and, and modern monetary theory? Well, first of all, as I just mentioned, um, we haven't really yet got onto any specific policy proposals. So far, this is just a lens for understanding the monetary system. And it's a lens that those old Keynesians didn't have. It does have some uh, uh, very long-standing historical roots MMT, and those those roots are not entirely in Keynesian economics. Um, some of the roots go back to um, the first proper discussion of uh, the historical and archaeological evidence about the original emergence of money four or 5,000 years ago, because fiat money, non-commodity money, is not something new, and it's not something which was invented in the 20th century. It's 5,000 years old. There's a very interesting book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years by the LSE anthropologist David Graeber that people could look at on that issue. Um, if you want to introduce a currency, you have to create a demand for it first. So if Scotland wanted to introduce its own currency in a newly independent Scotland, they'd need to create a demand for the Scottish pound or whatever it was they wanted to call it. The way you create a demand for a sovereign currency is to issue tax liabilities in that currency. People have to pay their taxes in a currency. It means they have to get hold of the currency. They can't get hold of the currency before it exists. So either the central bank will have to lend that currency into existence before it's possible for anyone to pay taxes. But that's a form of government spending anyway, really. It's just spending on financial assets instead of real goods. Or the government has to spend that currency into existence first. So this goes back to what I was saying before. The spending comes first. You have to spend those dollars into existence before you can tax some of them out of existence again. And the role of taxes is, first of all, to create a demand for the currency, and secondly, to limit total spending as one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways you manage inflation risk over time. And I'd like to go on to the borrowing bit, because, of course, one of the things that people are concerned about when you point out that in the US, across my entire lifetime, there have been four years fiscal surpluses and they were under Bill Clinton. Otherwise, the US government has run deficits every single year. And in Australia, since Federation, we've had deficits something approaching 80% of the time. And regardless of what politicians say now, across the rest of your life and mine, 
there will be fiscal deficits in Australia 80% of the time, whether politicians want them want it to be that way or not, just because of the way the monetary system um, is bound to work. People worry about those deficits because they imagine those deficits are adding to government debt and they imagine that government debt is at some point going to lead to a bond strike and that interest rates or yields will increase and we'll end up in a, people often talk about Greece because they neglect the fact that Greece is not a currency issuer. Uh, and they get concerned about a higher and higher proportion, as they see it, of government spending going to interest payments and initial financial crisis. Now, what we say is, first of all, the issuance of government bonds, of government securities in the first place, although it is something which has been done to approximately match fiscal deficits for decades now, is optional. It's not compulsory. The government doesn't need it to borrow the currency at all before going and engaging in spending. Or we, if you, if you want to have non-zero interest rates, there are reasons why you need to have a reserve drain in order to prevent banks having excess reserves um, uh, 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 if you're running fiscal deficits, because when the government spends, it puts funds into the banking system. And if it doesn't take those funds out through taxation, those additional funds sit in the banking system. But we, we, we already have a means of dealing with that now because the Reserve Bank pays interest on exchange settlement account funds. So if we were to run fiscal deficits and never issue any treasury bonds again, we wouldn't have zero interest rates in Australia unless the Reserve Bank cut the cash rate to zero. You'd have the Reserve Bank paying, making interest payments rather than the government. But um, I, a, a benefit of that would be at least nobody ever thinks the Reserve Bank can run out of dollars. So they wouldn't imagine the, 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 the government could either. So the borrowing is optional. But secondly, the interest rate paid if you're a monetary sovereign on government debt is a policy variable. Everybody should realise that now with respect to Japan. Japan has the world's highest level of government debt, six times as much government debt relative to the size of its economy as Australia does. And we all know, don't we, what the yield is on 10-year Japanese government bonds? Pretty close to zero. It's zero. And yeah. the reason why it's zero is that the Bank of Japan has decided it will be zero. Mm. Now, this was widely understood, and it was practice in the US across the Second World War and right up to the Korean War in the early 50s, when, for political reasons, really, um, the approach to uh, managing our monetary policy and fiscal policy changed in the US. Something similar happened in Australia in the early 1980s when we went to an auction system for Treasury bonds here. But at the time, the Reserve Bank was honest about why they'd moved to that system. They were issuing treasury bonds by auction to match the government's net spending, not to fund government spending. But if you go back and look at the RBA documentation at the time, it's to help the RBA manage domestic interest rates in a deregulated financial environment. Uh, uh, even within that environment, what the Bank of Japan and other central banks to a lesser extent have demonstrated in recent years is that if the central bank wants to use its balance sheet for this purpose, the central bank can set default risk-free interest rates right the way across the entire yield curve. Mm. So borrowing is optional. The interest rate you pay is a policy variable. And the third thing, which I didn't say, which I should have done, as a consequence of this, a debt crisis for monetary sovereign debt, where that debt is issued in your own currency and you have a floating exchange rate, is literally impossible. Mm. It can't happen. 
Well, it's a or, or it would be, it would it would be a choice by the government of the day to have a crisis. I guess is another way of well, saying. Well, governments yeah. gov- governments could governments could poison the water supply. I suppose yeah. if they want to, they exactly. could do anything stupid. Yeah, but there's no there's no, there's reason, no reason for it. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 I guess the, the as you said, the constraint is that you know you've got whatever it is, uh, twenty five million people, thirty million people in Australia. Um, if if you have a bunch of private people asking them to go out and do all this work, and you have the governments also wanting to 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 get those people to work as well, and if you have too many too many um, requests by the government, then wages start to to go up, and then inflation starts to go up on you know if everyone's trying to buy the same goods, and so that's that's your, your key constraint. And by but that the, the what that leads you on to saying mm. logically is if there is no issue with inflation at the moment and the Reserve Bank uh, missed its inflation target on the low side for five of the last six years, mm. and if you have over 5% unemployment, but more importantly, 14% uh, underutilisation, 30% youth underutilisation, in places to the north of Adelaide, we have over 50% youth underutilisation, mm. then either the government is not commanding enough of those resources at the moment, or... Um, the government is, is, is taxing us too much. One of those two things or both is true. In other words, there is no economic justification to run a balanced budget or a budget surplus at the moment. Yeah. I, I could go on and talk a little bit about what this might imply in terms of managing inflation. Well, um, actually, before you do that, can, can yeah. we maybe circle back to that a little bit later? Because uh, yeah. I guess there's there's a whole part of um, and you, you, uh, there's a whole part of modern monetary theory. I guess people can can get into to later on. Uh, what I'm mm. what I'm most interested in is some of the investment implications and, and where we see ourselves at the moment. So, mm. uh, in terms of um, I guess there's been a number of artificial constraints put on um, central banks in terms of what they can issue and what they can't issue. As you, you spoke about the Japanese central bank, for example, which is out there buying not only government bonds but exchange-traded funds and, and, and everything they can put their hands on. And so if you, as you spoke about, I think, what is it, 300% debt to GDP or something in the, of that order? Uh, but, uh, two, uh, it depends on how you measure it, but the way most people measure it is 240%. Yeah, we're we're but, 40% in terms of gross debt here, but, so it's six times our level. Yeah, but then if you went to a net debt, it ends up back sort of at 60% or something like that, doesn't it? Is that... Yeah, no, it's more than that. More but, than that? Uh, it, but in Australia, if you go to net debt, we go below 20. So there's still yeah. a big multiple of us. Yeah, exactly. So, but I guess what I'm saying is there's... Um, yeah, you've, you've got this artificial constraint put on there where, where in a way, the Japanese government says is sort of said, okay, well, we've got to go out and borrow. If we want to spend this money, we've got to go out and borrow roughly the same amount. And then they turn to the central bank and they go, well, will you lend me the money? And the central bank goes, yeah, sure, here. And that passes across. And, and so it's really just one out of one pocket into the other pocket. And, it's and weirder it's, than that, actually. It's weirder yeah. than that. In Japan, there is a rule that the bank uh, uh, in Australia, there's a practice, but it, there's no legislation behind it. In, in, in Japan, uh, there is a regulation preventing the Bank of Japan buying government debt on the primary market. So the mm. Japanese government <laughs> the, it sells the debt in the primary market, and then the Bank of Japan in recent years has been buying it back much faster in the secondary market. Right. So the amount of Japanese private debt, which is actually out there in the market, has been falling despite the Japanese government running big fiscal deficits. Yeah, okay. So, so I guess where I'm coming to there is, and, and actually you've, you've partly answered that, is is so which of the, of the main countries, say uh, the US, uh, Japan, Australia, UK, um, 
legislatively, what need what would need to change in order for them to to not have to to back it? So it sounds like Japan they they'd have to actually go and legislate to say yes, now it is all right for um, for the government to uh, to go out and spend money that that doesn't have debt issued behind it. Um, in Australia, are you saying it's just a practice? There's no legislative change that would well, need to be Australia, made. In Australia, until 1982, to an extent, although we we had less fiscal space then because we had a fixed exchange rate, but uh, it was only in 1982 when our, the current system or something like the current system uh, was introduced. It hasn't always been there. But I, I, I think we're, there's a danger of getting off the point because our view is this is irrelevant. Hmm. Okay. Everybody knows, everybody knows that the Reserve Bank would never under any circumstances bounce a Commonwealth government check. Everybody knows that the Federal Reserve uh, uh, is obliged never to bounce a, a government check in the US. Everybody knows the same thing is true in Japan. Yep. It, it really doesn't matter well, if you have a primary market where um, everybody knows that there's no default risk. Sure. Because what, what, what's actually happening is that the Australian government is spending dollars into the private sector, which offer virtually no interest, and then is offering investors uh, uh, securities, default risk-free securities, which offer a better rate of interest, so that there's always a demand for those uh, securities from those investors. You're not taking up a limited supply of dollars and competing with the private sector. This is something which is commonly misunderstood. What you are doing is you are offering savers the opportunity to have a higher rate of interest on dollars that the government has previously spent into existence. Sure. That's all bond issuances. And, yeah. and if you want to continue with the system as it is at the moment, apart from the fact it confuses some people, it, it, it has no implications for the fiscal space of, of the Australian Commonwealth government. So, so sorry. I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, uh, let's say a, a politician emerges who who's grabbed the whole MMT idea and and wants to go through and push it through. Legis there is nothing to push through. Okay, that's, so, the, that's my fundamental okay. point. Okay. It's a description of how it works at the moment. Sure. Okay. So let's let's let me let me let me phrase this question another way because I think we're we're going around possibly going around the circles here. Is mm. if somebody wants to take. Um, the elements of what you're saying and saying, okay, we are now going to spend money and we're not going to issue debt to, um, absorb, to, the to absorb the yep. that that money from from the private sector. Is what are there any legislative changes within Australia they would have to make in order to do in order to do that? No, because this is what used to happen to a certain extent when government bonds were issued on tap in the late seventies and early eighties until nineteen eighty two anyway, and they stopped doing it not for any reason to do with government finance directly, but in order to support the Reserve Bank in terms of the way the Reserve Bank managed what we now call the cash rate. Hmm. Now, if the Reserve Bank wants to continue managing the cash rate the way it is doing so at the moment, then it has to manage the supply of liquidity into um, banks' exchange settlement accounts. And government net spending which is not offset by the issuance of uh, treasury bonds or treasury notes, puts surplus funds into banks' exchange settlement accounts. If those funds were not drained from the system again, 
then the cash rate would fall below the Reserve Bank's target, the way that interest rates are currently managed in Australia. It wouldn't, wouldn't fall far below the target, but it would fall down to 25 basis points below the target because that's the rate of interest that the RBA pays on excess reserves that banks hold hmm. at the RBA. And it would mean the overnight cash market, overnight lending between our our banks would 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 disappear because banks would all have sufficient reserves so they wouldn't need to borrow overnight. Now, we know how this works because I've basically just described how things have happened over the past 10 years in the UK, in the Eurozone, in the US until recently, and are still working that way in Japan for reasons, some of which are based in legislation and some of which are just based in established practice and people not really understanding uh, the significance of what they're doing. The governments in those in those uh, monetary systems, let's leave the Europe out of it because it's, it, it, it doesn't have a single government, but the governments in the UK and Japan and during their years of quantitative easing the US were still issuing treasury securities onto the primary market but they were then immediately being bought back by the central bank on the secondary market, which means when you look at the final balance sheet position, effectively the central bank has been providing funding directly to the government. Yes. Yeah, and I guess what I'm saying, though, is if the central bank just stopped, if, if somebody said, I want the central bank to stop doing that, we're just going to issue the money um, now, and you don't want to use the word print, but we're... Uh, yeah, so we're just going to issue this money yeah. to, 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 to pay for the um, issue new, as you said, issue new money to, to pay for the services without, um, without borrowing. Uh, are there legislative, ch which countries will need legislative changes and which ones won't? Well, Japan and the US would, but Japan yeah. and the US have done it anyway hmm. because it's very easy to get around that. You just have the government issue the bonds onto the primary market and then buy. And the primary market dealers sell them to the central bank. That's yeah, the way it's worked Sure. over the last 10 years. So it, it's, uh, it wasn't designed this way. Central bankers imagined quantitative easing would have effects, which uh, people like me um, said it, it, it wouldn't have. But um, if you look at the balance sheets, when central banks buy government securities um, and call it quantitative easing, in order to boost banks' reserves. And at the same time, the Treasury is issuing new securities onto the market. That has an identical impact on balance sheets as the government just spending without issuing the Treasury bonds in the first place. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Okay, great answer. We've got a question from a... Yeah, so, so Stephen, we've just got a question come in from uh, one of our live listeners uh, from Sid. Thanks, Sid. Uh, I've seen references where MMT says the natural rate of interest is zero, and he's got two questions here. At low or zero rates, does this not encourage zombie firms? And how do economies in zero or negative rates get out of this situation using an MMT lens? So two, two questions there. First, the first thing is uh, I think there's a... When people talk about the natural rate being zero, that's MMT economists down the years being a little bit cheeky in a way. We think that there is nothing natural about, about uh, you know, there's no natural rate of unemployment. The natural rate of unemployment is supposed to be an equilibrium rate of unemployment consistent with stable 
inflation. Sometimes people call it the uh, NIRU or non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, which is ground out of uh, abstract, basically barter general equilibrium mathematical models that we find laughable. We don't believe that there is such a thing. And indeed, if you if you look at estimates of uh, NIRU from any policy institution around the world, basically the estimate they always give you is what on average unemployment's been recently. It's just a nonsensical thing. The natural rate of interest in those general equilibrium models is a similar concept to the natural rate of unemployment. It's a, a real rate of interest or an inflation-adjusted rate of interest, which is deemed to be the rate which is consistent with stable inflation. Now, we don't think such a thing exists, particularly because of the effect of changes in balance sheets as economies evolve over time. There is no such thing as a natural rate of interest, the way neoclassical economists use that term. However, people like Randall Ray and uh, Bill Mitchell and others um, said, well, if you want to use the term natural rate of interest, then suppose that the central bank didn't pay interest on bank reserves, which is what used to be the case. And suppose the government net spent, because as we know, it's normal for governments to run fiscal deficits almost everywhere in the world. I can explain why in a minute. This has been the case historically most of the time. Well, if there's deficit spending, which normally happens, you could see it as natural in a growing economy. And if you don't issue treasury securities to drain those reserves from the banking system, then banks will acquire additional reserve balances at the central bank. And if the central bank doesn't pay interest on those reserve balances, then you'll end up with a zero interest rate. So in that sense, the natural rate of interest is zero. That's what they meant by that. Mm. But but I guess what you're saying though as well is it's it's there's a there's a choice to make and it, it, and I'm you know I'm I'm guessing there's a you know banks sorry governments will take into account moral hazard issues of having zero interest rates and and yeah. But what you're saying is it's not a this it, interest rates aren't and really a bit aren't bound. Itself, zero interest rate in itself doesn't create any moral hazard issues. Right. Um, uh, uh, the a guarantee that you're going to bail out people who make bad lending decisions creates moral hazard mm. issues. Mm. Now, we, we, we have said for a long time, and I think now the evidence is going in our direction, that the consensus for the way you manage the economy uh, over the last 25 years was bound to break down because it was fundamentally unsustainable. That consensus, of course, has been essentially governments should balance their budget or run small surpluses, even though most of the time most governments don't. But that's been the consensus. And, uh, of course, uh, many people are in favour of uh, low marginal tax rates. So that means a small government and uh, all sorts of other things relating to privatization and private public partnerships come come from that but the idea was then that you leave the central bank to control interest rates in order to manage an inflation target and keep the economy growing now in order to keep the economy growing that has involved on average over time successive cuts in interest rates in order to encourage the private sector to go further and further into debt because over time as the economy grows uh, the stock of financial assets, you could say if you want the amount of money that's required, will increase as well. And if that money is not being produced by government deficit spending, it's going to be produced by 
uh, borrowing by credit creation in the in the private sector. And mathematically, the ratio of private debt to GDP inevitably increases over time under those circumstances. And you move towards more fragile private sector balance sheets. You tend to get asset bubbles on the property market and the stock market. There is a natural instability upwards during the good times and more debt gets taken on. And then you end up uh, with a fragile financial system and potentially a crash, especially if one or both of the stock market and the property market crash. Now, that is the system that we have been in. We have ended up in Australia having pursued that system since, well, really since the 80s, but let's say the early 90s. That's when the RBA was given uh, the job of hitting an inflation target by setting the cash rate to do so. We've ended up going from a country with almost no household debt compared to other relatives compared to comparable countries around the world, to the country which has the world's second highest level of household debt globally. Hmm. That's where we are now. We have a household debt to disposable income ratio, which is close to 200%. Relative GDP, it's 125%. The reason why the old policy won't work anymore is that interest rate cuts now, well, you know, they might prop up the property market for a few months longer, maybe, and lower interest rates, things remaining equal, they might put a bit more money into the stock market and prop that up for a bit longer. But we've reached a point now where household debt really can't go any higher and where capacity utilisation in the private sector is not high enough for business investment to be constrained by the cost of, of, of finance. That's not the main issue now, it's demand which is the main issue as far as business investment is concerned. So businesses aren't going to take on additional debt. Households, except maybe related to the property market and then not for long, are not going to take on additional debt. So by all means, cut the cash rate to zero. Uh, if you think you're steering the economy, um, this is uh, to take an analogy Warren Mosler sometimes uses, you're like the child sitting in the passenger seat in the car with a toy steering wheel, imagining you're steering the car because you're not steering the car. The person who is steering the car, whether he realises it or not, is Josh Frydenberg. Yeah. It's fiscal policy that works. Monetary policy is dead, broken, can do no more. And within 18 months, this is going to become obvious to everyone yeah. if it isn't obvious at the moment. So, But, but I guess there's still, when I, when I say moral hazard, and I think this is where Sid's getting to with his question, is saying, you know, if... if, if Companies can borrow at zero rates because that's that's where you've set the interest rates at. Then um, companies that are die. losing <laughs> companies that are losing money can just keep borrowing. We'll just keep no, borrowing the can't. money. No, no, they can't. Nobody's going to lend to them. They've still got to uh, repay what they're borrowing. It's <laughs> well, when you have a zero interest yeah, rate, but it does not mean you can borrow without incurring a financial uh, liability. I, sorry, but but companies that might have otherwise gone broke. And, and release their resources back into the rest of the the rest of the economy and, and let other more do, more dynamic companies um, you know take those resources and do things with uh, are hoarding these resources. Which as well resources as they can are these? Uh, so these are the resources. Uh, do you mean the unemployed workers? Uh, you mean- uh, no, no. I mean the, I mean some of the employed workers that are. So I guess. I, I'm with you that there's a that we certainly have an underemployment problem, and um, but but I think it's safe to say that that's that's more at the uh, the less skilled area. Well, then we of need society. to train some more skilled workers, and we need to look at the resources that we're putting into TAFE and higher education sure. as well. And that's a supply side issue. Yeah. It's something which could show up 
Inflation can play a useful role. A pickup in inflation in the economy can play a useful role in that it can indicate you've got some structural problems that you yep. need to address. Now, at the moment, uh, those problems don't seem to be an issue because there's really no wage inflation anywhere. Oh, absolutely. I think, and I think we're talking from, we're singing from the same hymn book here. I guess mm. I'm just talking about saying, I know there's companies out there that I look at and whether it be, you know, companies that are, that are, yeah, they're, it's a software maker that's still stuck, stuck with its software from years ago and it's gradually leaching customers and it's, it's, it's building up debts and it's, it's, it's sitting there not, um, you know, losing, losing out to a, to a, a quicker, nimbler players. And if interest rates are low enough, then that company will hang around for another 10 years before it finally gives up. If interest not, rates are no, a little no, bit no, higher... it doesn't have any customers, it won't. Well, the customers are gradually leaching away, but if, if interest rates are higher, it, 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 couldn't have, it couldn't survive today because it's not generating enough money, and so it would go taking, broke. And taking that logic to its extreme, you should decimate the economy. No, no, that, 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 that's uh, Austrian school logic. I don't oh, buy into that logic at all. We want to operate as close to full employment as yeah. we can get. But no, no, but you're, putting, you're putting words into my mouth. That, that other, but you're doing what other people do to you all the time. Everyone says, oh, MMT starts a little bit of inflation. Next thing we're in Weimar, Germany. So mm. I, and I think you're, you're doing the opposite to me. You're saying, oh, you know, you start down the path of, of trying to use some natural selection on companies. And next thing you know, you, you're crashing the economy to, to cutting the nose off to spite your face. I'm saying you need, a, you need moderation in all things. You need moderation in, in inflation. You need moderation in, in interest rates. But you need to be able to accept that, there are companies out there that wouldn't, if, if interest rates get too low, they would, they literally wouldn't. Sorry, there are companies if interest rates get higher, they wouldn't survive because their business model um, isn't good enough, and, and they'll go. If the interest rates are higher, they'll go. They'll go broke earlier. And, Let's and in, take a step back then. That, hmm. I'll agree with you, and I'll say yeah. you can have whatever interest rate you like. Hmm. None of that is inconsistent with MMT. Yes. It's a policy yes. decision. The interest rate you set. Yes. Uh, you do not need to issue government bonds in order to set a non-zero interest rate. You yep. simply need the Reserve Bank to pay interest on bank reserve balances. So if yeah. you want a 5% interest rate, mm. the RBA simply needs to pay 5% on exchange settlement accounts, and that will be the default risk-free interest rate, and other interest rates will be set relative to that. Now, you and I can disagree about what's an appropriate level of interest rates, yep. but that has nothing in itself to do with modern monetary theory. Absolutely. Mm. And that was the point I was trying to get to in the end. Is, and, and, what, and what you're saying is, you know, it's the same as the government says, well, the government decides what 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 uh, what crimes are bad enough to go to jail and which ones crimes are, are, are enough to have a fine. That doesn't affect modern monetary theory. That's just a, you know, decisions about how we're going to live in our society. And, and, what, and what we're saying is, uh, interest rates end up being in that same boat. That's not a yeah. They're they're a tool that you decide how high they are, not not a tool to actually run your economy. Well, it's a policy tool. If you yes. think that you can usefully leave the central bank with an inflation target and setting the cash rate, mm. then you can by all means go ahead and do that. That has no implications as far as MMT mm. uh, is concerned. And, and indeed, you could leave the system as it is at the moment, as I said at the beginning, because MMT really is just a lens. It does have some, I mentioned earlier, if I could just say something about policy implications, because I think people will be interested. And, and you've, you've asked me about uh, inflation. So I think that's, that's, that's important too. There's a couple of things I'd, I'd like to say. Mm. First of all, at the moment, we have in Australia a parliamentary budget office that when it comes up to the election or whenever, you know, the government's discussing new policy proposals, the pub parliamentary budget office uh, 
estimates their impact on the budget going forward 10 years. And the implication is that you can't do anything, even at the moment, which is a major investment if you're the government, without saying how you're going to pay for it. So there's almost that balanced budget, governmentless household uh, view of the economy, which is built into the way the Parliamentary Budget Office works. In the US, there's the Congressional Budget Office does the same thing. In Britain, the Office of Budget Responsibility. These are, at least in Australia and the UK, relatively uh, modern institutions which have reflected the consensus that I mentioned before over the last 25 years that governments should try and balance their budget. Now, if I was the Treasury Secretary, we would still have a Parliamentary Budget Office, but the job of the Parliamentary Budget Office would be somewhat different. It would be to uh, uh, engage in serious research and econometrics, looking at issues like slack in the labour market, but also the degree of uh, capacity utilisation across the different sectors of the Australian economy. And when it came to assessing the proposals of political parties at elections or what the government wants to do in its budget, um, the job of the Parliamentary Budget Office would not be to focus on whether it was consistent with balancing the budget. The job of the Parliamentary Budget Office would be to look at forecasts of inflation in the medium term and to do its best to try and forecast the impact on spare capacity and on inflationary pressures in the Australian economy of any set of policies or any particular policy proposals which were put forward. That that comes from inflation being the important constraint rather than balancing the budget itself. So we'd focus, far from MMT being, or MMT economists being relaxed about inflation, we like to think that um, what we propose is to look in more detail about what actually drives inflation and to focus on to focus on that mm-hmm. the the other point i wanted to make which is to do with policy is that um people have uh, quite understandably developed the impression over the last 30 years that government deficits are unsustainable and as far as this point is concerned that's entirely the wrong way around in an economy like Hours. Um, one of the fathers of modern monetary theory was a very famous economist who was one of uh, the um, Chancellor Exchequer's uh, wise men in the 1980s in the UK and had been the head of the Department of Applied Economics at Cambridge University, a guy called Wynne Godley. Uh, and Wynne Godley uh, developed what is sometimes called uh, uh, stock flow consistent macroeconomics, but put simply, he, he made sense of the economy based on looking at sectoral balances. Uh, And when we talk about sectoral balances, it's common to divide up the economy into three groups. There's the government, which of course includes and is dominated by the federal government. There's the private sector and and there's the rest of the world. And the point that uh, Wynne Godley made is that as a matter of accounting, these three groups cannot all be in surplus at the same time. One sector's surplus has to be a deficit showing up somewhere else in the monetary system. If there was no rest of the world, then if the government was running a, a surplus, they'd be taking more office in tax than they were paying us in government spending. Well, you know, that would be a surplus for the government, but it would be a deficit for us. We'd be paying out more than we were getting in. Another way of looking at it is that in our monetary system, for every 
lender who is a surplus unit, there has to be a borrower who is a deficit unit. So it means when you look at the accounting, if you look at the government's balance and the private sector balance and the rest of the world's balance, which is actually our current account balance, basically our trade balance with a minus sign in front, the three numbers have to add up to zero. That's not a theory. It's just an accounting fact. So we're not necessarily talking about cause and effect, but we are talking about three balances which over time have to move together. So, so Stephen, go on. Sorry, so just quickly um, on that note, um, and just sort of maybe to, to give a, a working example for those listening in, uh, I'd make reference to the the golden years, uh, and I, I do that in air quotes of surplus during the Howard and Costello years. And I put mm. to you um, a question: Was it really the golden years for everyday Australians in that vein? Yeah, well, that's that's the point I'm getting to really, which is uh, as, as you uh, very uh, perceptively noticed that. Um, when the Australian government was running a, a surplus, as it did eight out of ten years under John Howard and Peter Costello, that happened to be the, the, the point in time when our, basically our balance of payments deficit, our current account deficit, was at the highest level ever. We had a, a current account deficit of 6% of GDP at the same time when the Australian government was running a budget surplus of about 1% or 2% of GDP. Well, what that implies is that the private sector has to be running a deficit of seven or eight percent of GDP and that's what was happening during those Howard years. In other words, the government surplus was driving the private sector into debt. Mm. If you don't have a big trade surplus, then mathematically um, if the government's going to run a surplus, uh, either the business sector or the private or, or the household sector has to be doing the borrowing most of the time, under John Howard, it was the household sector driving up property markets, the property market that was doing the borrowing. That's where all that additional household debt and what is now a fragile financial system came from. Um, Japan had fiscal surpluses in the late 80s, and there was a crash in the early 90s. The US had fiscal surpluses in the 1990s. There was a small recession after the millennium. Then they managed to get the property market moving again with all that deregulation. And then, of course, we had the crash later on. We haven't had a crash here, but we have driven our private sector heavily into debt. And that's why the RBA is out of bullets, because there is so much private sector debt that it doesn't matter what they do to interest rates. And we're not taking on any more. And the government, by aiming for a fiscal surplus, which I don't think they're going to, I mean, they might get a tiny surplus this year, but maybe the bushfires will will wipe that out. They won't have it next year and the year after. What they're doing is they're vacuuming up dollars from our economy. That's all the government surplus is. It just involves the deletion of dollars from the private sector. They take more out than they put in. When they run a deficit, they're making a financial deposit into our monetary system, into the private sector. When they run a surplus, they're vacuuming, vacuuming dollars out of the private sector. It's not like a company making a profit that's going to be able to pay a dividend or anything like that. That's not what a fiscal surplus is. A fiscal surplus is just a huge vacuum cleaner of dollars. And then either the economy is going to go into recession or the alternative is that the private sector takes on even more debt to replace the money that the government is vacuuming out of the system with newly borrowed money in the private sector, which means if we were to go back to Hyman Minsky We'd be talking about balance sheets going from safe hedge balance sheets towards speculative ones or even Ponzi 
ones. And you're not, you're not saying we've got safe balance, balance sheets now, are you? No, I'm saying that we've, <laughs> yes. we've had we're, we're well past that point. Years, yeah. Twenty years of going in this direction, mm. and now would be a good time to stop. Yes. Um, now, just to, to change tack a bit, so just trying to get away from the actual, because just in the interest of time, just to get away from the, I guess, uh, what MMT is saying and, and the theories behind it, I just really yeah. wanted to get into, um, you know, you've just spent a, a, a time with uh, Stephanie Kelton, um, who is was the, the advisor to, to Bernie Sanders. So how close do you think, um, I guess, the U- is the US to, let's say we, we got a president, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, would he embrace the 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 uh, would he embrace MMT and and what comes from it? Well, Stephanie still is Bernie's economic advisor, um, so she, she's she's the chief senior economic advisor on the 2020 campaign, as she was on the 2016. Uh, it's getting very, and she in between times she was the uh, chief economist on the Democrat side on the Senate Budget Committee in Washington D.C. Um, Bernie has spent an entire life talking like a fiscal conservative. He knew nothing about MMT until about five years ago. So he still talks like a fiscal conservative um, in that if you ask Bernie about Medicare or you ask Medicare for all, or if you ask him about uh, his Green New Deal, or if you ask him about uh, free um, higher education in public colleges in the US, Bernie will tell you which taxes he's going to use to to raise those funds. Um, that's just the way he is. And I think in the middle of an election campaign, it's not a good time for him to change, <laughs> change his, his framing, particularly when you end up contradicting what you've said in previous years. However, um, firstly, uh, some of those, I don't want to give ammunition to his competition, but some of the things that he talks about, uh, I don't actually think that the, the the taxes that he talks about will will uh, delete as many dollars from the private sector as he's forecasting. If you put a tax on Wall Street speculation and then you use regulations to make quite a lot of that speculation unlawful, then there isn't going to be as much speculation. So you're not going to be collecting as much tax on it. And anyway, if you're talking about Pigovian taxes, then... The aim from those is when you tax things that you don't like is that there'll be less of that activity taking place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so should that happen, then your tax receipts will fall anyway. Um, but uh, I don't see that as a bad thing. I, I see it as a, a good thing, really. Um, the important issue when you're talking about any area of, um, of government policy is the real resources. If you uh, if you want to go ahead with Medicare for all, uh, do, do you have the doctors? Do you have the hospitals? Do you have the technology? Do you have the nurses? Can you provide all this to uh, provide people with the services which you're promising them? If you can do that, can you do it in a non-inflationary way? In the US, you almost certainly can do it in a non-inflationary way because at the moment, the US spends twice as much as anyone else on healthcare. Mm. It's an incredibly expensive system. If you get rid of most, if not all, of the current uh, system for doing the financing and uh, um, uh, the employees that work in the insurance sector at the moment, that frees up a huge amount of real resources so that um, whether or not you end up engaging in additional net spending on Medicare for all in order to bring it about, um, 
whether or not you uh, raise enough additional taxes in order to, uh, uh, in order to let's say, cover the additional spending which is going to take place on, on, on rolling out Medicare for all. I don't think that's going to be an inflationary policy. I think it'll be deflationary. Wow. Because of the enormous savings which should happen in healthcare and dealing with issues like the fact that at the moment in the US, uh, there's a whole range of drugs that sell for about 10 times the price in the US they sell for in Canada. It's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So um, you look for, you look at real resources. And if you want to engage in additional public provision or additional government spending, uh, you think about whether that spending is likely to have inflationary consequences. If it is, then you look at pay-fors. Those pay-fors can include, for example, for example, uh, macroprudential regulation. Mm. They can include cuts in government spending elsewhere. And, and, tra- and trading taxes. Yeah, and, and as you said before, like a lot of these problems is, is, is a constraint of resources. So if you said tomorrow, you know, we, we want to give all this extra free health care to everyone in America, there would be inflation because you've got a limited number of resources. But if you said we're going to give all this free over the next five years and here's how we're going to train the people up to actually cope the demand, then you, you don't have as much of a problem. And a lot of those resources will be freed up from the private sector, which is, yeah, if yeah. you introduce Medicare for all, is going to dramatically decrease in size. Yeah. In the, in the, it's not going to disappear, but it's going to decrease in size. Yeah, okay. So, so it sounds as if um, – so Bernie's um, – He's got his toes in the water, but he's not. He's not. He's certainly not diving in at the moment. Is is would that be a, a safe way to, uh, to to describe that? I don't want politicians to go around talking about modern monetary theory. Yep. Mm. I just want them to understand the world mm. using an MMT lens. Mm. How they go about then uh, uh, framing the policy agenda that they want to offer the public is is up to them. I remember Gordon Brown, the Labour Prime Minister in the UK. Uh, um, being derided for talking about endogenous growth theory once in an interview on the media. The last thing I want Bernie Sanders to do in the middle of an interview is to start trying to talk about modern monetary theory or explaining to an interviewer why he doesn't think that interviewer understands the US monetary system. Hmm. That's not the job of the politician. That's the job of people like Stephanie, which she's doing remarkably Effectively, if I'd had her in Australia for six months, I think I would have changed the country. Well, that's that was my, that was where I'm leading to the next one. So, so do you think do you think uh, there are politicians in Australia who are are drifting towards that view from from any of the major parties? I suppose. Uh, yes, in fact, I know there are. I, I'm not at liberty to to, to talk about these things yep. too much, but I know uh, that there are uh, politicians who are very interested and of course why would they not be it's obvious that the current mainstream is midway through failing the rba has got two more interest rate cuts in its locker and they won't work hmm. well, what are you of, going to do then i, I sort of feel if, if somebody just explained to donald trump in the right way that he can spend a lot of money i feel as if he would be a a uh, proponent uh, yes he's already <laughs> doing it yeah <laughs> yeah but, and that's the point this is a system as it already exists mm. and at least as far as the us is concerned republicans have always acted in the knowledge that this is basically the way it exists ronald reagan didn't care about fiscal deficits mm. neither did donald trump and uh, one of the things that made me have a sort of wry smile was a couple of years ago when trump was uh, advocating the 
tax cuts, which of course favoured the billionaires and were a disastrous thing to do. But the tax cuts that he uh, implemented that pushed uh, the fiscal deficit in the US up to four and a half percent of GDP. Hmm. And the Democrats were uh, um, laughing at him when he said, well, I can't run out of dollars. Yeah. And my wry smile was, that's almost the only thing I've ever heard him say, which is true. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and we, as we like to describe it, you know, he's they were very poorly targeted, but at least he was shooting the gun as opposed to saying, you know, leaving the gun in the holster for, you know, we're going to save the bullets no, for another day. I'm sure nobody's explained MMT to him, but it, he understands perfectly well. And actually, it's not that complicated. Yeah. The Australian yeah. government obviously should not spend without limit. But when it's appropriate to run a deficit, obviously the government can't run out of its own mm. its own currency. And, 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 and it, like I said, a government deficit is everybody else's surplus. You just need to look who's getting the surplus, where it's going to. And a government debt, please everybody, relax about <laughs> the Australian national debt. It is simply those dollars that the Australian government has spent into existence, which is has not yet deleted back out of existence. That's all it is. It's nothing to panic about. It's never going to cause a crisis. And, mm. and, and which government, uh, which government globally do you think is closest to um, to looking through, looking at the economy through an MMT lens? So is, is that your preferred way of talking about it? So, so are there, are there any countries in particular we should be watching as a as sort of test cases or as poster as, child? Yeah, our sort of first uh, patient zero. Well, I suppose if if you want a poster child, not that they implement policies which we would necessarily approve of, but if you want a country that proves that pretty much everything we talk about in MMT is correct, you only have to look at Japan. Mm. Interesting. Uh, that's not to say they don't do unwise things. Every now and then somebody goes over from Harvard or somewhere and tells them you need to jack up a consumption tax because your fiscal deficit's too big. So mm. they introduce a tax, so the economy slumps, mm. so they reverse that policy again. Yeah, interesting. Um, but um, both Bill Mitchell, who's Australian from Newcastle University, and Stephanie Kelton have recently been in Japan. I think they both did talks at the Japanese parliament, both of which were very well attended, including large numbers of parliamentarians. Uh, there's been a, a lot of uh, public debate, including by senior policymakers, senior former uh, public servants in the Treasury and people from the central bank about MMT in Japan. Uh, quite a lot of the fact that politicians don't publicly buy into this stuff is a mix of uh, vague memories of what they were taught years ago. And the fact that they've been saying one thing for so long in Japan, the government has been talking about a fiscal crisis and Standard and & Poor's and Moody's have been encouraging them to by downgrading them ridiculously um, from time to time. Uh, so it's very difficult now to turn around and, and say, well, maybe we were seeing it wrong. Do you think uh, the ratings, that's a very good thought, I just had a thought, are the ratings agencies in any way changing the, their tune or do you, feel, do you think they're still on the, the old um, sort of household budget way of looking at, at government? There was an economist called, what was his name, Ian Shard? I can't remember his name now, or Paul Shard, something like that, who a few years ago wrote 
a very good guide to modern monetary theory, who was a senior research economist at Standard and Poor. Mm. But in terms of the pra practical setting credit ratings, when, remember, they're supposed to be rating default risk. They're not supposed to be, at least if you look at what they say publicly, they're not, as far as I'm aware, they're not rating currency risk or anything. Um, they continue to do things like, well, I don't know what the current rating of the Japanese government is, but it's a long time since it was treble A. And on Japanese yen denominated debt should be quadruple A. Mm. And in the US, we've had the bizarre situation where the federal government in the past has had a lower credit rating than some American local councils, <laughs> uh, which yeah. is just nonsensical. And in both countries' cases, every time the US or Japan has had its credit rating downgraded, the yield on government debt in those two countries has gone down rather than up. It's gone in the opposite direction mm. to what you'd normally expect from a downgrade. The, the credit rating agencies are fine. Um, well, maybe I shouldn't say fine, given what happened in the global financial crisis, <laughs> but they can be useful resources yeah. when it comes to looking at the debt of anyone who is not a currency issuer. And that includes Eurozone countries, which are not currency issuers. But if you're a currency issuer and you're borrowing in your own currency, then whereas, sure, you could choose to default, I suppose, yeah. but you'll never be forced to default. It's just a fact. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Fantastic. All right. Well, look, um, we are sort of running out of time. I've just got, I've got one more question, um, and uh, I just thought I'd throw it at you just for your thoughts, but it was to do with MMT and climate change. Um, and I guess given the, the, the scope of the global financial uh, global climate crisis, is a new approach to global monetary thinking almost mandatory to address this, um, this global crisis that we see ourselves in at the moment, Stephen? I think the most important lesson that we can draw from MMT as far as the climate crisis is concerned, oh, I'm sorry, my phone is going somewhere in the background, I've got it ring off because I can't find it now, um, that... The most important lesson is that dealing with the climate crisis is a problem about the management and the deployment and the redeployment of our real resources. Yes. So if you've got spare real resources, if you have businesses with a spare capacity that you need in order to, in order to build uh, solar power plants and you've got the necessary locations to, to build pumped hydro stations and you've got people with workers with the necessary skills to do that, then you, the, the issue of not being able to afford to do it or the fact that it, it might lead you to have a somewhat larger fiscal deficit than would otherwise be the case it is, is not an issue. It's not the money, it's the real resources. And you need someone like the Parliamentary Budget Office after they've all been through a, an MMT course and the University of Adelaide is going to launch an executive uh, um, um, short course in modern monetary theory and investment analysis soon, so maybe they'll come on it. That's um, a good plug. They should. Uh, that's right. Well, my uni will be happy if I mention <laughs> that. Um, they, when it comes to addressing a green new deal or uh, a more uh, ambitious approach to reducing emissions over time and, and addressing climate change. The role of macroeconomists is to forecast the inflation risk. It's not primarily to focus on the government budget balance because taken out of context, um, looked at without reference to the extent of spare capacity in the economy and the potential impact on inflation 
of any proposal or set of proposals, the budget balance is an irrelevance. Very good. Well said. All right. Thanks very much. Well, um, uh, thanks again for coming on. It's been a terrific, uh, we've got a well over time here though, and it's been an absolutely fascinating chat. Um, would you mind just uh, offering up to our li uh, listenership uh, the any way that they can get in touch with you and follow some of the work you've been doing, Stephen? Well, if anybody's got any specific questions, I'll do my best to, to answer them. They can they could uh, send me an email if they like, which is stephen.hale, H-A-I-L, at adelaide.edu. Uh, .au, but uh, I'm not one of the I'm not one of the great experts on modern monetary theory. We do have one in Australia whose name is Professor William Mitchell, who has a blog site called Billy Blog, uh, and of course internationally uh, it follows Stephanie Kelton's work. Um, if you just do a Google search for Stephanie Kelton, uh, there are many many talks and things she's written. She also has a website, StephanieKelton.com. Um, which uh, uh, I would advise uh, um, people to people to follow. Uh, I, I'm on Twitter as well, Stephen Hale Oz. I think I'm I'm at Stephen Hale Oz on 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 Twitter. If if people want to uh, and follow my tweets on there too. But if anybody has any questions, I can help with or wants to have a chat. As long as I'm not absolutely snowed under, it might take me a day or two to get back to you. I'm very happy to help. And I, I'm, I'm not used to doing these uh, uh, podcasts like this. I, I would like to apologize if I interrupted you. No, um, no, well, you've, done a, you've done a smashing job. No, right, it's been a fantastic check. All the best. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. So, Damien. A uh, terrific, uh, well over an hour spent there with Stephen, uh, Dr. Stephen. Uh, your thoughts and maybe if we flip it around now into an investment lens? Yeah, sure. So look, I think um, the key thing we've been watching is uh, and concerned about in terms of a longer term picture is when do you when do you worry about inflation starting to come back and when do you when do you start to see bond yields rise? Uh, and, and one of the key uh, factors that we see within that is, is governments actually getting out and starting to spend money. And so while, um, you know, I, I appreciate what Stephen's saying, and I, I think there's there's a lot of uh, lessons that could be learnt and, and taken from the government, I'm still not convinced that any of the governments are actually particular, or any politicians are, are actually particularly close to implementing mm -hmm. and, and looking at it. And as he, as he said, even uh, Bernie Sanders, who's you know, um, key economic advisor is is uh, very you know, pro MMT. <laughs> is yeah, one of the MMT's leading lights um, is still you know just playing around at the edges. Mm. And so I think uh, it's just one more sign that that this burst of inflation that that um, you do have to worry about in, in some of these long term bonds uh, is still just not not yet on the horizon. Mm. And so until we really see um, solid signs that that politicians picking up on that. Um, you know, I'm I'm not concerned about about an outbreak of inflation. Yep, sure. It, it, it seemed to me as well that the um that just this whole um fallacy with the surplus budget, where you've got you know um, generally conservative uh, leaders running for surplus using the house, household budget sort of uh, analogy on on a federal level, which is you know mm -hmm. as, as Stephen sort of completely just disassembled in the last sort of hour hour or so. Um, it almost seems to me like you know if if it's a, if you, if you're running for a deficit, then you're almost you know starting to lean into the MMT sort of style of thinking. Um, because you are exact, you know, you're not taking away from the private sector, as as you were saying in that zero sort of sum, um, yeah. you know, economy. Uh, 
economy equation essentially. Um, sure. And uh, look, the way I look at it, the way I tend to look at it is saying um, we know the Australian economy has this sort of productive resource out there that, that's available. And we want to try and maximise it. So we want to have as, as few people as possible not working. And um, we don't want to have too much inflation because, uh, you know, we start to get, they start to create imbalances mm. around. And so it's a question about saying, how do we, how do we organise our economy so that you maximise the employment and without letting inflation get out of control? Uh, monetary policy is been the sort of key measure for that for the last 20, 30 years. And it's pretty much shown that it can blow big debt bubbles, but it really can't run the entire, run, can't run the whole show. Mm. And so that's where we need different ideas. And, you know, uh, for us, uh, MMT and certainly, well, certainly government spending, whether you want to, as, whether you want to look at it through an MMT lens or not, um, is where you're going to see that, that actually start to come about. And so, um, you know, I think the whether you want to look at it through an MMT, whether you want to call it Keynesian spending, whatever it is, you need something to get these other resources um, productive and other, you know, our, our underemployment rate back to more more um, more reasonable levels and, yep. and just maximise the productive capacity of the, the economy. And it's, and really, it's just an argument now as well about how do we maximise it, but and then how do we divide the spoils? You know, yep. does do all the spoils go to the richest one percent yep. again, or, or or do they go out more to the 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 um, the, the 99%. Yep. And I think uh, MMT type theories and certainly government spending means that the 99% will, will, will benefit more than the 1% or should, should do if you, if, if you do it correctly. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> if, you've, if you've got uh, Trump style tax cuts, then, then maybe that's not the case. But, yep. um, you know, un, under the expansion of healthcare or, um, you know, uh, we didn't touch on UBI or, today or, or universal basic income yeah, was another lever. Those yep. types of factors, yeah. Yeah, I'll probably, I'll probably push back a little bit against UBIs. But anyway, but that's, that's probably a story for another, think, another day. Yeah, it might be a good topic next time we get him on the show. Yes. Excellent. Well, that's it for now, and thanks for watching. If you like what you heard today and you'd like to hear more, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe, give us your email address, and in return we'll send you a weekly email with new webinar topics, links for our podcasts, and other news from Nucleus Wealth. I certainly hope you've got something out of today, as I have, and we'll look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers. Cheers.